0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, let's go ahead and pray as we continue our worship. Father, it is good and it is right for us to be reminded that we live upon you. We use that term Father continually in our in our prayer. And yet I wonder how often we stop to really contemplate what it means that the God of the universe, the one who is the Lord of hosts, the one who has all power and authority, all sovereignty over the works of his hands, that that God in his loving kindness and mercy has become a tender, wise, nurturing father to his human creatures. And Father, even for us personally, that we can call you by that name, that we can embrace you in that way, that we can rest in your fatherly care, As Jonathan Edwards said, sovereignty without love is fearful, for it is tyranny. But to know the love of a father who has all power and all wisdom, all resource to accomplish the goal of his loving kindness. Your love to us is not a platitude, it is not merely a sentiment, it is a purposeful determination. And it will see its full fruition. Father, teach us what it is to trust you, to walk with you, to depend on you, to find all that is needful for life in you. I pray that as we return again to this Hebrews epistle, that you will gather up our hearts and minds That you will free us from distraction, the things that would carry our thoughts away, the things in which we are afflicted, the things in which we are distressed. And that we would find the ministration of truth and grace that the writer intended for his distressed and beleaguered readers. May the fruit that he sought for them be ours today. We ask these things of you with all the hope and the confidence, the trust that are ours in Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, last time we considered this idea of suffering as discipline. And I think, you know, for many Christians, it's a new idea, um, whether because of how we define discipline or because of just the idea of suffering as in any way uh, related to the care and love of our Father. And yet the writer, as we saw, he believed that the key to the perseverance of these saints who were struggling in many ways, they were suffering incredibly in many ways, in ways that we ourselves have not experienced. Imprisonment, seizing of property. And yet he wanted them to understand that their perseverance, their continuance in faith, what would carry them forward was to perceive that suffering in a right sort of way. And in some ways, when as long as it becomes abstract and theoretical, intellectual it's easy for us to think about suffering perhaps uh, you know in a kind of biblical way but when it gets close to home it gets a lot more difficult and I know that that each of us in our own time in our own ways we do suffer we've suffered in the past we perhaps are suffering in many ways now and we will suffer in the future And to be able to understand it rightly and to respond to it rightly is really the key, not only to our perseverance, but our joy, our peace. And so the writer fundamentally wanted his readers to understand that their suffering was not something that was happening apart from God's knowledge. It wasn't some strange thing. Something that, you know, God didn't know about or God didn't care about. But in fact, God was present and working wisely, lovingly in their affliction. What he calls their discipline. And the fundamental point that I tried to get across last time is that we in the modern world have gotten away from really a biblical idea of discipline how it really functions in a full orb way. We tend to maybe associate it with correction, even punishment. Sometimes discipline has a negative connotation in our mind, but these Hebrew readers being part of a different culture, a different uh, ancient way of understanding discipline, particularly in relation to a father, they would have understood this, that discipline is actually a father's intentional, all-encompassing, intentional, comprehensive training by which that father prepares his children for the future that he has ordained for them. Now that's the way discipline worked in the ancient world. A father had a determination for his children And from the time they were little, he structured all of their nurturing towards the day when they would finally step into that role, fulfill that purpose that he had appointed for them. And to me, that's a very powerful understanding in terms of how our Heavenly Father works. God's discipline is his intentional, wise, all encompassing, Always present work by which He is preparing us for the goal that He has for us. In some ways, it's the human goal, the goal for His human race, but it's also a particular goal or appointed end for each of us as we are a part of that purpose of God for the human race and ultimately for the whole creation. So he wanted his readers, the Hebrews writer wanted his readers to understand that this God whom whom they had embraced in a new way in Jesus as Israel's Messiah, that God was working towards that end, that goal that he had appointed for them, which was the full realization of their sonship, what it meant for them to be sons and for that sonship to be perfected in them. And in the most simple sense, the perfecting of that sonship is that they would fully, completely, exhaustively, without flaw, without corruption, without imperfection, share in the life and the likeness of the one who is their father. As I've said before, our destiny, if we say, okay, well, God's discipline is working towards the perfecting of this sonship, When this is all said and done, we'll be able to say just as truthfully, as Jesus himself said, to see me is to see the Father. Because God's destiny is that, God's purpose is that we would attain the destiny for which we were created as his image and likeness. That we would be the perfect image of the Father just as Christ himself is the perfect image of the Father. Well, the nature and the goal of that project of discipline then is the reason that it demands suffering. It's not that God doesn't care. It's not that he's out of touch. It's not that he's trying to punish us for the things that we've done wrong. Let alone the fact, uh, you know, the idea of some people, well, it's just a broken world. That's the way it is. God can't do anything about it. The reason for suffering in this project of discipline is that it's by enduring circumstances beyond our control that we really learn what it is to be sons. The Hebrews writer says of Jesus, he learned Obedience. He learned what it is to truly be a son through the things that he suffered. Because he was a sinner? No. Because he was wayward in his ways? No. Because he was a human being who had to be fully conformed to the life and the likeness of the Father as he came into the world. And trying circumstances, if you think about it, Things that press us outside of our control, that make us see that we have no control. We can't solve this. We can't resolve it. Those things are critically important to weaning us away from this inherent sense of self, this self-centeredness, this self-seeking, this sense of self-sufficiency. And we in our culture particularly, more, more so in this generation or this century than ever before, the 20th century, we have the sense that we can fix it. We can find the money, we can find the resource, we can fix it. And when life presses us into a realm where we have no control, even beyond our understanding, it, it pulls us back from that As I said, it's an inherent sense of self sufficiency, self resource, independence. It nurtures our dependence. It nurtures our intimacy with the Father. It draws us close to Him. It it, it cultivates our conformity to Him, our humility, our gratitude. And that's how this thing of sonship in the truest sense is nurtured through the things that we suffer. And it's not just sickness, and it's not just financial downturn. It's all of the things uh, that, that, that come from life in this world. And as I said last time, particularly from this principle of contradiction. As sharers in Christ, we are living a new creational life in the old creational world. And that creates a constant conflict and contradiction and struggle, so we have to view as these writer, uh, these readers did, we have to view suffering as the father 's discipline that 's key to persevering in faith, but it also then raises the question, okay, if we have to view suffering in terms of discipline, what does it look like then to relate properly to that discipline? What does it look like to respond properly to the Father's discipline? And that's what we're going to consider today. So I'd like to uh, pick this up, well, let's just go back to verse 1, just to set the context, but we're going to be considering specifically today verses 11 through 17. He says, having such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, as they did, and the sin that so easily tangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, as they did. Well, what does that look like? What is, the, what is the perspective on that? We have our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of the faith, the faith that we have embraced, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, consider him who endured such contradiction is the idea by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your battle, your struggle against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son did not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when, he, when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. It's for the sake of discipline. It's in, the, it's in the outworking of discipline that you are enduring. God is dealing with you as sons. Indeed, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, then you are actually illegitimate children, not sons at all. And furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. We yielded to that. How much more, rather, should we be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them in their finiteness, in their, in their uh, lack of, of understanding, in their error. But he disciplines us for our good, our Father in heaven, that we might share in his holiness, that we might be fully conformed to him. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's actually distressing. And yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, pulling you out of the race, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men in the sanctification, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. That there be no immoral, a godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So how do we profit from the father's discipline? And I want to treat this just under two parts, two general heads. The first is that in order to profit from the Father's discipline, we have to perceive it properly. We have to perceive it properly. We have to understand what it is and how it works. We have to have a right perception. And then the second thing is, out of that right perception, that right thinking comes a right response to it. How do we respond to it? In our conduct, in our pursuit. So, in terms of right perception, I want to deal with this under two pieces also. The first being the absolute necessity of perceiving the reality, the truth of the present. If discipline is what God is doing now unto a goal that He has determined, then we have to perceive the truth of the present, what we're presently experiencing. And we also, secondly, have to understand, we have to rightly perceive the truth of the future. The truth of the future. You know, I I say this often, and it's a good thing to think about and certainly a good thing to ask other Christians, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the definition? What is the essence of being a Christian? And where is it going? Is it going anywhere? What is the purpose? What is the goal? What is the outcome of being a Christian? That gets at these two things that I'm speaking of that, in a sense, have discipline at the center of it. Well, with respect to the present, the writer insisted that all discipline... Seems, it has the appearance in the way it appears, in the way it feels, in the way it seems, it's distressing. It's distressing. Not because it's punishment, you know, and this is true with earthly discipline as well as God's discipline. It's not distressing because we're getting spanked. It's not distressing because we're grounded. It's not distressing because we're being punished. The fundamental reason that all discipline appears, it seems to us, uh, it it comes across and and it feels very distressing to us, is because discipline is concerned with something that transcends the immediate. Discipline as it actually is in the biblical sense, as as the writer of Hebrews is speaking of it, it, it creates a distress because it isn't concerned with the present in the truest sense. It operates in the present, but specifically it's not concerned with present interests or desires. It's not concerned with what we want or what's happening to us. It's not concerned with our present desires, our present interests, our present concerns. It's entirely concerned with the future. A future that isn't fully discerned by the person being disciplined. Think again of of a child being disciplined by his father in the ancient world. Being nurtured and raised and trained for the destiny that the father has appointed for him. That child doesn't understand all of what that's going to be. It exists yet in the darkness of the future. There's an uncertainty to it. It's remote from his present experience. And often it's contrary to what that child or that person being disciplined would perceive to be his concerns and his interests the ones that he has at that time. Discipline pertains to something beyond our grasp. That's why it's distressing in the most basic sense. And that becomes very important in terms of, again, and I'm, I'm not gonna go, go to that point right at this moment, but how do we respond to discipline? our natural instinct is to say, God, take this away. Why are you punishing me? It ought to be this way. You need to change this. You need to remedy that. You see, we're focused on the present, and the distress makes us say, God, deal with the present. And God says, I don't care about the present in the ultimate sense. What I'm doing in the present pertains to the future a future that you haven't yet laid hold of, that you can't fully get your heads around. So in that way, discipline actually strips the disciple, and a disciple is a person subject to discipline, right? Same terminology. A disciple is a learner, a trainee, someone under discipline. And what discipline does is strip the disciple, in this case, the sons of the father, it strips them of their own agenda and their own sense of themselves. It takes from the disciple, it takes from the son, it takes from the one under discipline, the apparent delightfulness of pursuing his own course and ends. Discipline doesn't seem delightful, if my father really loved me, he would do this. This is where my interests lie. This is where my concerns lie. This is where my heart and my mind and the, the scheme of my life is right now at the moment. And if this father loves me, he will meet me in the moment. He will meet me in the moment with what I'm concerned with, what I would like, what I think it's about, my agenda, my, even my sense of myself. We have to perceive the truth of the present, not just what's happening in the present, but the meaning of the present. And that points to the second thing. We have to be able then to perceive the truth of the future, specifically the fact that the present must be understood in terms of the future, If you think again about a father carefully in all things day by day, week by week, month by month, structuring everything in the life of his son towards the outcome that he's determined for him, then obviously the meaning of the details day by day is in the future outcome, right? The present has to be understood in terms of the future. It can't be understood as it sits in itself, not rightly. At the, time of the, at the time of the difficulty, at the time of the struggle, there is a painfulness, there is a distress. And the primary distress, again, is that discipline won't allow the person under discipline to be who he thinks he is. Discipline is shaping a person towards who the Father knows he is, towards the Father's purpose for him. Discipline won't let us be who we think we are, who we believe ourselves to be. It strips us of that sense of ourselves, that sense of agenda, that sense of understanding. It peels all of that away from us. Instead, what discipline does is it, is it compels, it presses the one under it to reconceive himself, to rethink himself, according to a vision that yet lies in the future. The vision that the father has, not the vision the disciple has or the son, the vision that the father has. Discipline instructs the son, the disciple, in the truth of who he actually is. As the father knows him to be, as the father has determined. Discipline nurtures us, the disciple, in the truth of who we actually are. And it continually reinforces that truth, even as it works through the circumstances of life to bring full realization to that vision that it holds out. See, the fundamental problem is that what we think and who we think we are and what we think it's about is not what God understands and what he's doing. And discipline is moving us from here to there. It's, It's taking away from us the delusion so that we could become sons of truth. So the answer to the distress of discipline is to embrace the vision and the goal that discipline is working towards. In this case, to embrace the sonship that the Father is working out and perfecting in us. Well, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus himself. The answer to the distress of life, the distress of the discipline that comes to us. And it's not just, again, because of our sin or our folly. Jesus knew a life of suffering apart from sin. The distress of contradiction, of living as a son in truth in a world that is opposed and at odds with God himself. The answer to the distress of discipline is to embrace what that discipline, not just embrace the discipline, that's a means to an end, to embrace the end that the discipline is working towards. As opposed to what we normally do, which is to beg God and plead with God to give us relief in the present. God, take this away. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why is this person sick? Why did this person die? Why is this? Why is that? Take it away, take it away, take it away. If you love me, it will look like fill in the blank. We have to embrace the father's vision, the goal of this discipline. A child who embraces his identity and his calling as determined by his father finds himself at peace. He's no longer at cross purposes with his father and the future that the father has appointed for him. He's not at loggerheads, constantly battling, constantly struggling. And in the case of God and his children, what this affects is that it it brings the peace of being true to ourselves, finding ourselves for who who we actually are, one of the things that Jesus said that people often wrestle with, because it doesn't, on one level it doesn't seem to make sense, but he's putting his finger on this very thing. This is in Matthew 16, and as Jesus now comes to Caesarea Philippi, he begins to expose in a more open way the truth of who he is as the Messiah and how this is actually going to play out very much different than what they expect. They're going up to Jerusalem, but not for him to ride on a white horse and overthrow the Romans and take his place on the throne of David you know, in connection with the temple. But he's beginning to unfold this for them. If you pick it up in verse 21, it says, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem as the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, began to show them. They've already seen and confessed, Peter's confessed, he is the Messiah. And he began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem, but to suffer many things and be killed. And then raised up on the third day. They have no categories for this kind of Messiah, this kind of outcome. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, we will never let this happen to you. This isn't how it works for the Messiah. This isn't the triumph of the Messiah. We'll never let this happen to you. And Jesus turns to him and said, get behind me, Satan. Is he saying he's actually Satan? He's saying, no, you're deceived. In a sense, you're subject to the deceiver in this. You are a stumbling block to me. As you are subject to the deceiver, you are an instrument of his own attempt to stumble me, to deviate me from my my calling. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You're thinking about this in a human way, in a natural way. Oh, this can't be right. This can't be how it works. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone would actually align himself with me and be my disciple in truth, walk with me, be of one mind with me, He must deny himself how he naturally thinks, how he naturally understands, what seems right to him. He must take up his cross and follow me. This is dying to this way of being human that we all think is is, is what God created us for. Jesus put to death this fallen Adamic way of being human beings. And you must also follow in that path For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. How do you find your life by losing your life? That doesn't even make any sense. He's saying you have to rethink all of this. You have to, in a sense, embrace a new way of being a human being, a new way of being the people of God. You have to lose life as you know it in order to actually find your life. If you would preserve your sense of living your human life, if you would preserve your sense of yourself as you know it, that's going to go away because I'm going to put that to death on the cross. The one who finds life, the one who finds the truth, his true life, is the one who loses the life that he embraces now. That's what it is to take up your cross. Die to the fallen, broken, Adamic way of being human to become truly human, sons of the Father and the Messiah. That's what this course of discipline is all about. And just as a son of a father who will quit fighting his father and who will embrace his father's vision and purpose for him will find peace in his life, so it is with God's children. And as I said, it's not just that we have some sort of kind of peaceful life or whatever, but that actually owning the father's vision for us is finding the truth of ourselves, Because we are what he created us to be, not what we think we are, to become sons of the Father in truth. So when God's discipline does its work as intended, it brings the future into the present. It says, here's the destiny, this is the outcome, this is the goal, and it brings it into the present. In other words, it nurtures faith. What does faith do? Faith brings the future into the present. It gives substance to that which doesn't presently appear, right? Hebrews 11.1. 1. It gives substance to that which we can't grab, and it lets us see what yet lies in the future. Faith is not believing God for the outcome we want, we hope for, we desire. Faith is owning God's truth, That which lies out in the future, pulling it into the present, living it out now. Letting God's truth be the definition, not what we think. That's how he even uses the example of Jesus. Jesus was able to disregard, to set aside the shame, the agony, the distress of the cross, because he could see what was coming from that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It doesn't mean it was any less agonizing, any less real, any less, you know, a part of his experience. But by seeing its outcome, it allowed him to find peace in the midst of that. The faithfulness that was causing these Hebrew readers suffering is in an ironic way perhaps the very answer to their distress. The faithfulness that was causing their distress was the answer to their distress. Not deliverance from their difficulties, perseverance in faith. And that's how the writer is fleshing this out as we move forward. He says in this strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame that which is lame may not be put out of joint but instead may be healed he's still using this athletic Im- imagery of running a race and the basic idea is that when uh, if you've seen someone run a long cross-country race over hills and rocks it's a long, it's a tiring, it's a uh, an arduous process of running that sort of a foot race. And it will always leave the athlete weary and sore. Even to the point of feeling that he can't continue on. If you've ever run cross country, particularly when it's not just, you know, out in, you know, east Colorado, but up in the mountains or something, it, it, it tears your body apart. It tears your body apart. If that runner is to complete his race, he's got to strengthen the hands that are weary. You know, he, he's weary. He's got to strengthen his weak knees. And he's especially got to be careful to avoid uneven and rocky terrain ground that he'd be able to maybe just breeze over when he was fresh at the beginning of the race, now is going to trip him up because he's weak. He's sore. He's tired. He's got to be especially careful to mind the path he's on because he'll stumble a lot easier than he did at the start of the race. And that imagery applies to the race of faith. This this ordeal of faith, this life under God's discipline, is a long and an arduous ordeal. It continues throughout our lives. It's not something that we can pray away or pray. And if we could, God would be unfaithful to honor that prayer. We can't pray it away. And it takes its toll, it wears out those who persevere. As the years roll on, it leaves us exhausted, battered, and bruised. If we're running the race of faith, it will leave us battered and bruised. And so in order to finish our race, we need to keep the goal in sight. These things are working to yield what he calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God perfecting us to share fully in his holiness, in his likeness. And in that way, by keeping our eyes, pulling the future into the present, pulling the future into the present, it gives us strength to keep going. That's what it means to live by faith. To live by faith doesn't mean to trust that God's out there and he's going to give me what I want. And I know that sounds caricatured or facetious, but for the most part, that's how we live. It hurts God, stop it, make it not hurt anymore. It's hard, take that away. To have our feet set on level ground, to have our feet set on you know, steady places, doesn't mean that God takes all of the difficulty away, it means that we are stabilized in the difficulty. That we are held steadfast, like, like a ship, you know, driving true through the water. This is Philippians 3 imagery. If we don't bring the future into the present, if we don't let this discipline show us, if we don't hold on to what God is doing, we will find our own race jeopardized. The lameness that we all experience will end up with that limb going out of joint. You can still run, you can still you know, move forward with a soreness in your hip. But if your hip pops out of socket, you're done. You're not going to be running anymore. And this proper orientation, this faithfulness, this holding and governing of our minds will allow that lameness to, in a sense, be healed. We can continue on, as opposed to being shipwrecked, having that limb go out of joint. Well, that understanding, that perspective, that way of thinking about things is the framework for understanding the charges that now come in verses 14 through 17. If we're going to look at all these directives or imperatives now that he gives, they have to be understood through the lens of what I've just been talking about. There is the first the obligation and foremost the obligation of right perspective, only then can there be a right response. You can't respond properly, except maybe accidentally, unless you have the right perspective. So this right response then, he he really, I'm going to deal with it in this way. It's a right response with respect to other human beings, with respect to ourselves, and respect specifically to the body of Christ. In other words, all of the realms of life come under this head of right response. It's not just in this. It's not just in our prayer. It's not just in our Bible reading. It's not just in our job or in our marriage. All of life is subject to this right response. And with respect to other human beings, he says, pursue peace with them. Pursue peace with them. This is a relentless, dogged pursuit. And this is very hard. This is very hard. Pursue peace. Now, the word all men isn't in this. NAS puts that in there, and I think that's implied. But I think, first and foremost, the idea is peace, even in the church. When things are hard, when we're getting pushed, when there's suffering, when there's difficulty, when there's financial issues, when, you know, property's being whatever it happens to be. It's easy for us to get at odds even with one another. And certainly in the case of these Hebrews, when you put it into context of them actually suffering at the hands of people who are treating them unjustly, this admonition, this directive, live at peace with all men, becomes especially challenging. It becomes especially challenging. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, the doers of peace. They will be called the sons of God. And he goes on to say, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And in a very real way, Israel's Torah told them to hate their enemy, to deal with their enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? Everybody loves those who love them. And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than anyone else? Even the Gentiles, the pagans do that. That's just natural human uh, relationships. You are to be perfect as your father is perfect. You are to be what he is. You are to view people the way that he views people. And this peace doesn't just mean stop fighting with each other. It's not the absence of conflict. It really is the overarching creational obligation. The Genesis account shows that the driving, organizing, harmonizing principle in the creation is shalom, peace. It speaks to a harmonious interrelatedness, mutual dependency, mutual service, by which all things flourish and thrive. That's what shalom is about. And it was lost in the fall. And it's ultimately restored in the Messiah himself. Peace I give to you. Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Peace is shalom. It's, harm, it's the harmonious relationships among things and here among people that brings flourishing. It's the inherent disposition and orientation of this thing called righteousness, rightness. When we are living as sons, we will be peacemakers because God is the God of peace. And this is a universal obligation Even to these believers as they thought about all of the persecution and unjust suffering that they'd been enduring. Well, how can this actually happen apart from just fabricating something? How does this actually happen if this is a disposition and orientation of the inner man? Well, suffering is God's discipline and that discipline works towards the nurturing, the growth of that sonship. And growth as a son is growth in the likeness of the father. Likeness of the Father. You will be sons of your Father if you are peacemakers. So the fundamental obligation then is pursuing peace. Now with respect to ourselves, he says pursue holiness. Holiness. And this concept, again, is something that we don't tend to always understand properly. We think of holiness in terms of upright conduct. And that's more an effusion of holiness, a fruit or an outflow of holiness than what it actually is. Holiness has to do with the nature of a thing itself. A thing's thing's status of absolute consecration that that results from God's determination. The holy things of God's sanctuary couldn't be touched, couldn't be looked at. They were available only to the sight and the handling of the priests. And they were things. They weren't even alive. Shovels, right, for cleaning out the ashes. They weren't even alive, and yet they were holy to the Lord. The idea of holiness is something being utterly devoted to God, consecrated to him. It's not about how we behave in the first instance. You can behave properly and be totally estranged from God. Holiness has to do with what a thing is. And so the writer's call to pursue holiness is the call to fully embrace and pursue to, to in a sense, go along with the Spirit's work in this work of discipline that is the nurturing of our sonship and the outcome that God has for it. And that pursuit of holiness is not going to get rid of or reduce our suffering. We often want to think, okay, God, I'm living my life this way. I'm doing all the right things. So therefore, all of this should go away. And it's not just us. This is the way human beings are. When they came to Jesus and they asked him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices, Jesus knew what they were getting at. And he said, don't think that these Galileans were worse sinners, that this happened to them. And in John 9, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, we always want to connect good outcomes with good behavior. If I scratch God's back, he'll scratch mine. Because that's how relationships in this world work, don't they? You treat people properly, they'll treat you properly. You do the right thing with God, He's going to do the right thing with you. And that means that if I'm about the business of this thing called holiness, then it's going to go well for me and life will be easy. And it doesn't work that way. Living into our sonship will grant us peace, but it won't rob us of suffering, it won't deliver us from suffering. It will change the way we think about it. It will change the way we profit from it. So how do we, how do we apply this thing? How do we respond to God's discipline of our, and the nurturing of our sonship towards all men? Be peacemakers. With respect to ourselves, pursue this conformity to God. Pursue the progress of our own sonship. Bring the future into the present. And then lastly, towards the brethren. This is the idea of how do we respond to God's discipline in the context of the church. Recognizing that God disciplines his children and that discipline involves suffering, we've got to look out for each other. We've got to help each other. And that's the idea. Watching over one another. Watching over, when he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He's not saying, watch over yourself that you don't come short. This is the, and I'm not saying that has no place in this, but the obligation is to watch over one another. And this idea of coming short of the grace of God is the idea of an apostasy, pressure, difficulty, hardship, unfulfilled expectations cause people to fall away. Jesus said that would happen. There are those who receive the word with joy, but trouble, trial, the cares of this life, choke out, the, choke out the plant, making it unfruitful. This is a warning against apostasy, if you will, a departing from the faith so as to find oneself ultimately excluded from God's grace that are bound up, revealed in, and ultimately realized in Jesus himself. And we've talked about how there is a tendency of pressure against these Hebrews to soften, round the edges, soften a little bit, maybe even retreat to Judaism to make things go better for them. Well, he expresses how this can work in terms of, okay, we watch out for one another. What are we looking for? What, would, what might this look like? And he gives us three particulars. This isn't exhaustive, but this kind of gives a sense of definition to what he's getting at. The first thing that he says in this process of falling away is bitterness. Bitterness. The imagery that he uses, the expression kind of points to a root of a plant that when it comes out of the ground and it grows, it bears toxic, poisonous fruit. It grows and it grows. And when it comes to maturity, it's poisonous and toxic so that anyone who eats it or interacts with it is going to be poisoned. This idea is an inward, this could begin small, it could be very subtle, but it's an inward resentment that continues to grow and grow until it finally breaks out in a kind of overt, open, consuming bitterness that poisons everyone around us. And if you don't think that happens, you haven't been in the church very long. It has the effect of poisoning everybody. Well, what could be the basis of that? The resentment of my difficulty, my suffering. Where's God? Why isn't He delivering me? Why isn't this better? How can this happen? Why did this? Why did that? And it churns and it churns, and we run the tape over and over and over again. It's Psalm 73. You know, Asaph was so consumed with the, what he saw as the injustice of God that he said, "I have to keep my mouth shut because if I talk about it, I'm so, I'm, I'm seething inside. And this is so, this is so unbearable for me that if I talk about it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cause my brothers to stumble. I have to keep it to myself and seethe and seethe and seethe. Go back and read Psalm 73." And again, all sorts of things can lead to this bitterness, just the fact that life doesn't look the way we think it should. But perhaps most of all, and that's what these Hebrews were dealing with, is unjust suffering. Not suffering because of their sin or their stupidity or their crimes, but unjustly as disciples of Jesus. They were suffering the contradiction of faithfulness in this world, and that can make us bitter, God, I'm serving you. Where are you? The second and the third things go together, and he uses Esau as an example of this to kind of flesh it out ungodliness and immorality. Ungodliness and immorality. And by using Esau as an example, it shows to me that he's talking about what are two fundamental qualities of idolatry. What is idolatry? We think we're not idolaters because we don't make little statues or we don't worship Baal or whatever. But idolatry is, is putting anything in the place of God. False gods. And ultimately, there's really only two gods. There's the true God and there's me. All the gods that we fabricate are just extensions of ourselves, things that we fabricate in our minds that we think will serve our agenda. There's God and then there's me. Idolatry is life centered in self. Point of reference, point of concern, point of interest, point of judgment. And you see this with Esau as, as he uses this example you know, in, in, the, in dealing with Jacob and, and with his father, Isaac. Esau, for the sake of an empty stomach, sold his birthright. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Esau, by birth, had primogeniture in the covenant household. Now, God had another plan. But Esau was the firstborn. He, was at, he had the privilege in terms of being son of Isaac, covenant son. And yet he was willing to, to hand that over for the sake of filling his stomach. And it seemed insignificant to him at the time, but it determined his future status in relation to the covenant, to God himself. And later when he sought Isaac's blessing, when he sought that Blessing of the firstborn, there was no blessing to give to him. And he pled for it with angry tears, and yet there was no blessing for him. That blessing was taken from him. It was gone from him. The same fleshly self-concern that said, what do I need this birthright for? I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Was the same fleshly concern that made him weep and plead with his father. Bless me, bless me, bless me. And it's true, Jacob schemed and deceived the father in order to obtain that covenant blessing, but the truth was Esau's dismissive disregard of his covenant status, his ungodliness, his godlessness is what took it from him. And Esau didn't condemn himself in that, he condemned Jacob. He didn't say, my carnality, my selfishness, my self-concern, my desire to push away any sort of discomfort or, or uh, you know, um, distress or, or whatever. My desire to, to have that mitigated uh, is the reason why I've lost this status. He didn't say that. He said, Jacob is the guy. I'm going to kill him. And that points to his Immorality. The term pornos, it can mean, you know, sexual immorality. But it also, in Israel's life, and I think for these Hebrew readers, it most often carried the signification of spiritual unfaithfulness. Adultery or harlotry. Esau overthrew all that mattered to him was immediate relief, immediate gratification, what he wanted now, and he was willing to throw everything else aside. And that, that's really the heart of the warning of this writer to these Hebrews. What are they going to do with it? Is their distress, is their discomfort, are their difficulties going to cause them to fall away? And it's the same with us. We have an obligation of faithfulness. All Christians know they're to be faithful. But what does that really look like? What is it to be faithful? As I said at the outset, we have to answer the questions, what is a Christian? What is the Christian life? Faithfulness demands a mind that is governed by the truth of our identity in in the Messiah and the destiny that God has appointed for us and how God is working to prepare us for that. It's pulling the future into the present. It's governing ourselves to view and, and order our lives in the present according to the truth of where this is going. And that's not easy. When it hurts, it's not easy, is it? What's easy is to be snapped down and say, God, take care of this. God, fix this. God, I can't handle it. God, God, do this, do that. To walk out the present with a mindset on the outcome is what faithfulness actually looks like. And that doesn't mean that we're Pollyannas. It doesn't mean we we deny our difficulties and how much it hurts. It doesn't mean that we put a happy face on them. But what it does is it allows us to actually profit and flourish in our suffering in the way that God intends. It allows us for uh, us to actually appropriate and profit from what God says is his discipline, operating with the mind of Christ, walking in the truth. This is my close. Third John, very short epistle. But John is very much focused on his children, the people that he's ministered to, that they would continue on in the truth. And here's what he says to Gaius. To the beloved Gaius whom I love in the truth. My beloved, and that's Gaius, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. As your spirit is prospering, For I was so glad when the brethren came and bore witness to your truth, which is to say that you are walking in the truth, not his truth as we understand it, but that you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Do we say that to our kids? Do we say that to our friends? Do we say that to one another? no greater joy than to see you walking in the truth. Walking out your sonship, eyes on the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it's about. That's how we profit from the Father's discipline. It's a discipline up here. Father, I pray that these things ring true for your saints. And Father, even for the young people that are here today who maybe don't have a living, personal, vital faith, a true and a vital relationship with you, I pray that these things would show them what it really is to embrace Christ and to become Christians, what really this journey is all about that none of us would have undue false expectations. There is so much nonsense, there is so much error, there is so much satanic deception in this world, in this country, in the church. The expectation of an easy life, the expectation of realized dreams, The expectation that our parents live to see our personal interests and desires and concerns as we imagine them, to see those things realized. To see our Heavenly Father through the same lens. That you, in effect, God, exist to gratify our desires, our passions, our interests as we perceive them. Help us by your Spirit to truly be children of God. Sons who walk in the truth. That in our suffering, in our pain, in the things, the distresses of life, that people who observe us wouldn't see a people who are seeking relief but are seeking only to further be conformed to the destiny for which you have created us. That this is the path of sonship. This is the path of sonship. And Father, may we be those who watch out for one another. Because when we're weak, when we're stumbling, when the the limb is lame, we need someone to come. Someone whose shoulder we can lean on. Someone who at that point has a strength that we don't have. I pray that we would bear one another's burdens in that way. That we would be faithful with one another. Not to give empty platitudes but to be those who encourage and spur on our brother and sister to persevere, to continue to run this race of faith, knowing the glory that is appointed for them and for us. Father, help us in all these things. I pray that we'd be edified and encouraged and I pray that the things that have been said today, that we would mull over them, that we would pray about them, that we would truly do business with them and not just push it aside as another long, boring, tedious sermon. I pray that it would have a transforming work in our hearts and minds and lives by the goodness of your spirit. We ask these things with all of the confidence that is ours in you. Amen.